This is episode 31 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hey, I'm Jeff Sanders, author of the 5AM Miracle book and host of the 5AM Miracle podcast. If you want to find your own path to success, freedom, and happiness, then stop what you're doing right now and start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend, Tom Hefner. Part of it is understanding what it is that you have to offer and how you can simply communicate that. Part of that is helping businesses identify those pain points and figure out what those pain points are. And then from there, once businesses see the pain point, you don't really even have to sell your services very much. You don't have to sell your expertise. They almost start asking you questions and begging for it. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business, and entrepreneurship. Today, we speak with Chris Daly, an online marketing expert and successful entrepreneur. He's going to share the most effective habits and practices we can adopt to become successful entrepreneurs and how we can leverage online marketing to be a big part of that effort. In our conversation, Chris and I will be discussing his story of entrepreneurship and the key to that success, the powerful benefit of daily affirmations, the most effective habits we can cultivate to increase our success as entrepreneurs, book recommendations that are gonna change how you look at work and life dramatically. I'm telling you right now, you don't want to miss out on these two book recommendations. I promise you, you won't regret reading these books and so much more. One of the things we cover often on this show is entrepreneurship. And part of becoming a successful entrepreneur is understanding the habits and practices that lead to success. Our guest today, Chris Daly, is a fantastic example of how the right habits and practices can lead you to success as an entrepreneur. And we're going to chat with Chris about both the habits of success and dig into his area of expertise, which is online marketing through better user experience of websites. And Chris is a, a digital marketing entrepreneur with a passion for helping businesses succeed online. After spending years driving traffic through SEO and digital marketing efforts, Chris turned his attention to user experience of websites to see if he could influence traffic to convert better. And after running his first few tests and experiments, he fell in love and began focusing on helping businesses test their website experience. And in fact, in 2014, he started his conversion optimization agency, Daily Conversion, which was a full service agency helping businesses discover what converts best on their sites through testing. And then in 2016, he merged his company with Disruptive Advertising, where he currently works as a VP of site testing and optimization. And one of the cool things is they offer full service A-B testing solutions to clients, including strategy, design, development, and analytics. So end-to-end, cradle-to-grave, they got you covered. Chris, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much for having me on, Tom. It's a It's a pleasure. Chris, I've said this before on the podcast, but one of the things that I've learned very quickly in the podcast world is that you need to be very good at online marketing, you know, be it through social media, search engines, or through your own website. And for a lot of us, that's a, that's a really foreign world. How did you find your way into this, uh, into this world or this industry? You know, it was a total accident. I kind of stumbled into the industry. So I was looking for a job while I was in college and I ran into a distant relative, like a second cousin or something like that, that I have literally never seen since this conversation happened. Uh, And she knew of this job doing sales for a digital marketing agency. So I thought, what the heck, I can do sales. So let's let's do that. So um, I ended up going and selling at this company. And I was selling SEO at the time, which SEO is all about getting your website to rank well on Google. And uh, as I started selling it, I became fascinated by it. You know, this is something that I had certainly never heard of and didn't know even existed. And so the idea that 
you know, people could influence and manipulate the Google rankings and the algorithm was just very, very interesting to me. So I ended up applying for a job internally and, uh, and got that job. And so I spent a good three or four years, you know, as, as you mentioned in my bio, doing search engine optimization. What I, you know, I, I was working internally at, at a company and we were doing phenomenal on the SEO front. We had increased the traffic to our website by like 300% over a six month period, which is pretty good. Yeah, I'd and, say so. <laughs> <laughs> and as we started looking into things, we were going, oh, great, we're getting all this traffic. I bet that's generating a ton of business for us. And it turns out it wasn't. You know, we were getting all this new traffic to the site, but for whatever reason, they were coming to the site, leaving. They weren't signing up for anything. They weren't filling out a form. They weren't buying products. They weren't doing what we wanted them to do. And as I started asking around at the company I was at, I was trying to figure out what's happening here. Why are these people not converting? And no one could really help me answer that question. No one knew why it wasn't converting. It was just like, well, maybe maybe the traffic sucks. <laughs> and I refused to accept that because I'd spent all that time getting this traffic. So this this is where I discovered A-B testing. You know, I just did a search on Google, found out that you could take one of your pages on your site, create a copy of it and change some things and see what happens. See if, you know, conversion rates go up or down and thought, what the heck, let's give it a shot. And so after the first couple tests I had run, I, I found a pretty significant increase in conversion rates, which blew my mind because at the time I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I created these new page designs that looked worse and, uh, but they ended up performing better. And so that's what really sparked my love for what I do now, which is conversion optimization, which, you know, I, my, my love was identifying what is it? Why, like, why did this page I created convert better? Um, and it's just, you know, it's all kind of been history from there. So like I said, it was a total accident and I never intended to start a business. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneurial type. And so it was all just kind of an accident that I, that I stumbled into this space. So we'll pull the thread on that a little bit more. Like, why did you decide to kind of venture off on your own? Yeah. So my wife actually is from a very entrepreneurial family. Both of her parents have started their own businesses. So she was always kind of very supportive of the idea of me starting a business. Um, for me, the the risk was too great. I come from a very um, conservative financial type of family. You know, my dad... Uh, worked for Intel for 25 years, and now he's been at Adobe for 10 or 15 years or so. Um, and so he's, you know, I, I was raised in a family where you go and you work at a big company and you keep the same job for most of your life. And, <laughs> uh, and so that's just, you know, kind of what I had in my head. It's really interesting how the way that you're brought up really affects the way that you think. Um, and you can absolutely change it, but it is hard. And so when I got into this space of conversion optimization, uh, when I started um, doing A-B testing, I actually was working for a company that was owned by a larger investment group. And we were seeing a ton of success on our website. We were, we were increasing our conversion rates pretty dramatically. And the, the guy who owned the investment group said, wow, you guys are having a lot of success converting traffic. Can you teach my other companies how to do this? So I started doing these training sessions, teaching these other companies how to how to create a good A-B testing process, how to look for ways to increase conversion rates. And as I had these training sessions, a lot of these companies, which were pretty large companies, um, would we would get to the end of the training, they'd say, this is awesome. We love this. Can you just do it for us? <laughs> um, <laughs> that would you know, be much easier. <laughs> right. And so that kind of, that's, that's what started to spark the idea in my head. And, uh, and so I started having these conversations with my wife, had a lot of people that kept coming to me, asking me for help, asking for consulting work. And, and so my wife and I finally thought, okay, you know what? There's never going to be a better time to do this than now. We had one kid at the time and, you know, and I thought, look, the, the more kids we have, the less likely I'm going to be um, <laughs> to want to take financial right, risks. Right. So this is really it. Like we either do it now or never. And so I met with a few mentors of mine and asked them, you know, how can I do this? Like, what, what should I be thinking about? And they helped me think through some, some really concrete financial goals for myself. They helped me think through, you know, one of the 
things that a lot of new entrepreneurs can't do is let go of the pipe dream. You know, once you start a business, you are bought in. You have to be bought in. Otherwise, there's no way you'd take the risk. And so one of the things they helped me to do is to have kind of a bailout point. You know, look, here's your six-month goal. Here's your 12-month goal. If I haven't reached those goals, I will walk away from this and I'll go back to having a job. So they helped me think through those things. And then I decided, all right, I'm going to give this six months. If I haven't reached this goal in six months, I'll, I'll go back to getting a job. And so, you know, that's kind of what it was. And it, it was a combination of a very supportive wife who helped me to think through things in a smart way and was willing to support the financial risk and some really great mentoring people that were help, you know, able to help me think through things that I might not already think through, you know, think four steps down the path and, and think about what it's going to take for me to actually be, be successful. You, you know, your story really resonates with me. Uh, I'm probably a little bit older than you, uh, though I don't know how much. But um, it's funny because I come from a, a very conservative uh, family in, in the sense that, like, look, you know, you, you saved a lot. You you had the uh, good paying job. You, you know, you stayed there. Like, that's what you did, right? And uh, that's what I did. You know, I, I graduated from college. I went off to work. Uh, so I, I, I still work at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. And I've always kind of had this bug about starting my own business. And it's only in the last, I don't know, I'll say year or so that I've really gotten serious about it. And to your point, you know, about having more kids, we, we just had our third kid in November last year. So um, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, it gets harder, right? It, it gets uh, harder to do that. <laughs> so uh, I'm definitely resonating with that story a lot. Well, and I wanted to pull the thread just a little bit more on it uh, in, in a specific way. So, you know, Chris, one of the comments I get the most when I speak with my listeners or uh, my friends or even some colleagues about entrepreneurship is that they're afraid to venture out on their own, right? They're afraid they, they won't be able to find work or they won't be able to find clients or customers uh, for their expertise or, or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and so you, you just went through that experience, uh, you know, detailing that story. Like how did you, approach that challenge of like, one is that fear part of it, but then also the more practical part of it, which is landing your, you know, your first few clients. Yeah. So one thing for me is fear is one of those things that if you ignore it, it just gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so for me, you know, having a lot of those fear, a lot of those same fears, because I mean, I was not your typical entrepreneur going into starting my business. I was coming off of you know, four to five years of working in-house being basically a digital marketing nerd. You know, I was, I, I was not doing any kind of sales. Um, in fact, I remember going to a conference, a digital marketing conference, and there was a networking event that I didn't go to because I was like, what do I need to talk to other people for? I'm not <laughs> looking for a job. Like that was the only reason I could possibly imagine for talking to people was if I'm looking for a job. And I, so, you know, I, I avoided these kind of networking events or, so I was not really set up for success when I started my business in the sense that I didn't have a ton of connections. You know, I had, I had done some trainings for these big companies, but as most people know who start a business, you go in with these, you know, silver lights in your eyes of like, oh, I've got all these opportunities. And pretty quickly you realize that most of them aren't going to turn into anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so it, it was a major fear of mine was that fear of failure. So in order to move through that fear, number one, I have to recognize what that fear is. Like, what is it that I'm afraid of? And a lot of that comes out. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tony Robbins. And uh, I went to one of Tony Robbins events here in Utah. Oh, I don't know, in the last six months. He actually went through some of this. He, he said, well, what is your fear? You know, what, why, are my, why are most people afraid of failure? And he started digging in. And, and a lot of that fear a lot of the fear of well, what if I start my company and I can't find clients? What if I start a company and I am not successful and I have to go back? You know, a lot of that fear comes down to your personal fear of not being enough. You know, it's not a, it's not necessarily a fear that I'm not making enough money to, to support my house. I mean, that's part of it, but I'm afraid of not making enough money to pay my house payment because then, well, what if I lose my house? What if I have to move back into an apartment? What will that say about me as a person? And that's what a lot of that fear is. And so one habit that I have created, and I know you talk a lot about habits and, you know, one habit that I, that I created in the last few years was I call them daily affirmations. I don't know what other people call them, but affirmation statements that help me remember that my worth, my like 
I love myself. Like it's not my worth has nothing to do with what other people think about me. My worth has nothing to do with what my wife thinks about me even. You know, I love my wife and I'm grateful for her support and if all of the choices that I make in my life are based on whether or not my wife is going to be happy with me, I'm not going to make very good choices. <laughs> you know, if all of the choices that I make in my life are based on what my friends are going to think about me, what my employees are going to think about me, I'm probably not going to do some very innovative things. So I have to be my biggest supporter. And so I go through these affirmations for myself every day, reminding myself that, you know what, if I lose my house, I'm okay because I love myself. My my worth as a as a man is not dependent on the house that I have or the car that I drive or whatever. I love having those things. So that's one thing. The other thing for me is the best way for me to combat fear is to put a plan in place. If I can have something actionable that I can go and do, it helps me to get out of the fear because the fear is just like all these unknowns and all this, you know, <laughs> all these ideas in my head. And if I can get a plan in place and go okay, well, look, here's what I'm going to do to find clients. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z tasks over the next three to six months. And if it doesn't result in this, then here's the next step. You know, I'll go and, and, I'll, and I'll apply mm -hmm. for a job. And if it does work out, then I'll keep going and I'll continue doing X, Y, and Z tasks until I get to this goal, this, this milestone. And if I haven't reached this milestone... So, I mean, having that plan for me was really helpful for me to just have, okay, well, worst case scenario is I work my butt off for six months and it doesn't work out and I go back and get a job. That doesn't sound that scary to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Like I, I'm fine with that. And of course, I would prefer for that not to happen. But, you know, as long as I've got this plan in place and I know exactly what to do. So, you know, that's kind of the first half of your question. Then the second half of your question was, well, how did I find those first few clients? And that was a big challenge for me. Because like I said, I was not a big networker going into starting my business. Whether you are starting a technology business or a product business or an agency like I did, networking is important because it helps you find valuable business relationships and valuable personal relationships. I'll share with you one of the odd experiences that I had that led to one of the best personal and business relationships that I've had in my oh, whole life. Oh, do tell, do so, tell. <laughs> I was heading down to Arizona. I grew up in Arizona, graduated from high school in Arizona. So a lot of my friends from high school are down there. So I was going down to Arizona for a high school reunion. I don't normally make it a habit of talking to people on airplanes. On my way back from Arizona, I sat next to this woman and, and her, I don't know, like four-year-old son. And, um, and I had a four-year-old daughter at the time. And so, you know, similar ages. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was just sitting there reading a book and, uh, and the kid starts asking the mom for candy. And the mom says, well, I don't have any candy. And he says, well, can you buy some candy from the stewardess? And she said, well, I don't have any cash with me. And, and so, you know, I'm just sitting here listening and I, and I, I'm kind of a junk food junkie myself. So I always have snacks <laughs> with me everywhere I go. And so I turned over and I said, I really don't mean to sound creepy, but I noticed that, you know, your kid was asking for a snack. I happen to have like a bag of Skittles here if you guys want it. Um, I know, you know, my kid needs a snack on, on the plane or whatever, but it's, it's up for grabs. And so she said, oh, thanks. And so I gave her the bag of Skittles and we started talking and she mentioned what her husband did. And her husband was... Um, his name's Mark Mabry. He was involved with this really cool nonprofit organization called Operation Underground Railroad. And they are these ex-Navy SEALs and CIA operatives that go and rescue children that have been abducted for sex trafficking. Oh, wow. Really, really serious. Badass stuff, man. Yeah. And, and, I, and I sat there and I was like, well, that's really interesting. I would love to see if there's anything that I could do to help him. You know, I would love to use the skills that I have to to help him. So, anyways, we got off the plane. She introduced me to her husband. I gave him my phone number, and uh, nothing really happened for a few months. And then, about three months later, he texted me and said, "Hey, I'd love to go out to lunch." So we went and got lunch. And you know, long story short, we ended up really clicking, just on a personal level as well as on a professional level. I ended up helping out Operation Underground Railroad and donating some, you know, some of my time and some of my services to them. Uh, and then, and then Mark ended up referring a ton of clients over to my business, but it all started from just this kind of innocuous conversation about you know, a bag of Skittles. Um, and so for me, networking has become more than just like looking for business for me, networking. And, and this made it a lot less scary to me too, because the idea of networking, of going to like a networking event and just like 
peddling my services to every single person at, at these events sounded really scary. But for me, networking has become having real conversations with people, getting to know people, and then finding out if there's some kind of mutual interest in either services or whatever. But it's it really comes down to building relationships. And so I started attending, when I first started my business, I started attending a bunch of just local networking events around the area. You know, and I started applying to speak at some of those just to share a little bit about, you know, how my services can have have helped other businesses. And this did a couple things for me. First, it helped me to work on my pitch because I was a nerd and I didn't know how to talk about my services without going a thousand miles over somebody's head. So it helped me to work on my pitch, it helped me to simplify it, it helped me to get really good at talking about what I do, and it also started to generate some business for me. And so that was how I got my first few clients was just going to some of these networking events and then a couple of speaking gigs that I had applied for that ended up with me getting one or one or two clients here and there. Um, and, it, and it started helping me piece together my initial book of business. Yeah, that tracks uh, really well with um, my, my professor at um, Penn when I was in grad school for psychology. He talks, uh, Adam Grant talks about this uh, this idea of give and take. And and he talked about like going to networking events and how people just usually go there to get something, right? Like they just want to take, take, take. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, right? But he was saying you'll be much, much more successful if you are able to give just as much as you take, right? And yes. I think that's what your experience is, uh, is at least uh, demonstrating for me. You know, one of the things so far as, you know, on my experience as an entrepreneur, one of the, the really difficult things I've found is to try to sell my expertise and and I think it's you know, kind of the, the next segue to what you were just talking about with networking. And I do a lot of, as an example, I do a lot of work um, in the design thinking or human-centered design space. Original background is in engineering, and then I got into design thinking. And like I've used these methods to solve really, really difficult challenges. I've taught it at organizations. I've taught it in universities. So without like tooting my own horn, I'd like to think that I know this skill set very well. Selling that expertise, man, that feels like a struggle to me. Can you talk about how, you know, uh, your experience uh, of, of selling your expertise if you're not good at sales? And I know you have one uh, example there with, with networking, but what are some of the other ways that we can do that? Yeah. So the first thing that was actually really helpful for me, I sat down with one of my mentors who was excellent at sales and he helped me think through a couple things. For me, it's really important to understand what my value propositions are. So if I'm selling my expertise or even if I'm selling a product or whatever, I need to understand what are the value propositions that I have to offer? Or in other words, what do I have that can benefit somebody else? How can I really help someone else? Because the value propositions, if, if I understand what my value propositions are, okay, well, for example, for my conversion optimization business, um, I help businesses learn what, what people want on their website. Okay, that's a that's a valuable, you know, proposition that I have mm-hmm. to offer because most people don't know what people on their on their website. I help facilitate design and development for my clients. That's important because most companies really struggle with finding design and development bandwidth. That's one that's one of the other things that led to me starting my business initially was I needed help with that. We bring expertise and manage the strategy and we have, you know, it's a full service end-to-end process. So we really take this completely off of businesses plate so they don't need to worry about it. Those are kind of a few of the initial value propositions that I would think of. So thinking through what my value propositions are and how can I communicate those in the most simple you know, one sentence fashion possible, that is, that's a good place to start. And then it's also important for me to understand what are the common pain points surrounding those value propositions. So, okay, if somebody needs help with design and development, that's a pain point if they are struggling. So that might be something that I look for when I'm, when I'm in these networking conversations and I'm talking to people and I'm asking, tell me about your business. What are some things that are going well? What are some things that are not going well? Um, you know, if they bring up, well, we're really struggling with resource issues, then a light might go on in my head and say, they might have a pain point there. They might have some, they might be struggling with design development resources. Maybe I should ask some more questions about that, you know, and similarly with any of the other aspects, you know, of what I was talking about. One of the challenges that I, that I had when I started was people were not aware of the pain points that I could resolve for them. People weren't aware that it was a problem that they didn't know what converted on their website. 
right? So it wasn't a pain point for them. It was something that they were blissfully unaware of. <laughs> and so if I was just asking them and waiting for them to say, well, I don't know what converts on my website or, or our conversion rates are low. Well, most people don't know what a low conversion rate is or what a good conversion rate is. And so that, again, wasn't a pain point. So an- another thing, you know, I'm just kind of rambling right now, but I'm going to tie all this together in a second. You know, another thing that I that I would do a lot is ask people questions that help them identify their pain points. So I would ask questions like, how did you decide what to put on your website? You know, show, tell me what, what's your website? Let's pull it up. How did you decide what to put on there? And then they'd start talking me through, okay, well, well, we hired this big design agency and this UX expert and blah, 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 blah. You know, they start going through all this stuff. And when it comes to the end and they, and they have shared with me how they came up with this design, I'd say, okay, so it sounds like you guys went to an expert. They told you their opinion and they put together what they thought looked the best. And you guys put that on there. Is that kind of a way to simplify? Yeah, that's really common. You know, I see that a lot with businesses. The challenge with that is, and so then I introduce the pain point to them. The challenge with that is you don't actually know what your audience wants. You just know what this developer thought that you should have on there or what your CEO thought you should have on there. So anyways, taking this kind of all back to how you can start selling your expertise Part of it is understanding what it is that you have to offer and how you can simply communicate that. Part of that is helping businesses identify those pain points and figure out what those pain points are. And then from there, once businesses see the pain point, you don't really even have to sell your services very much. You don't have to sell your expertise. They almost start asking you questions and begging for it. It's like shooting fish in the barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's an experience that I literally have every single day over here at Disruptive. And I love it because I don't feel like I'm selling people. I feel like I'm helping them. I'm, I'm consulting them. I'm helping them understand that there is some opportunity that they're not taking advantage Advantage of, and that I happen to have the solution that will help them. Uh, that will help them resolve that. No, yeah, that makes uh, that makes sense. Well, looking back on your, uh, we've talked a lot about your entrepreneurial journey just now. What do you think are the the most effective habits that we can cultivate to help us succeed? As an entrepreneur, yeah. So I mentioned, I mentioned already, kind of the the affirmation statements that I do. Those are super important for me because if you don't believe in yourself as an entrepreneur, nobody else is going to believe in you. I actually had this experience yesterday with one of my employees who was approaching one of our existing clients, trying to help them capitalize on an opportunity that they weren't currently taking advantage of. And so he approached this. It was basically a sales conversation, right? He approached the sales conversation with a ton of hesitancy. You know, most of the recommendations that he was giving didn't sound like recommendations because it was like, yeah, I have this idea that, you know, I think maybe might be a good idea. Do you think that's a good idea? Like, you know, um, and it, it just wasn't coming from a place of confidence. He wasn't believing in himself that he had something awesome to offer these people. Because when you have something awesome to offer somebody, like if you had the cure to cancer and you were talking to someone that had cancer, you wouldn't say, hey, I have something that, you know, that might work. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. Work, like, I it, don't know. It, might, it might help your life out a little bit. Like, what do you think? I mean, you would say, dude, I have the solution to your problem. I can help you. And so that's, you know, very similar. So first of all, you've got to believe in yourself and affirmations are just a way for me to practice believing in myself, to go through and say these statements over and over again, every single day to myself, you know, that I love myself. I, I, you know, I have something to offer this world. You know, I have, I mean, just telling myself these things that help me to feel like I am valuable, that I value myself. And and then second, this is kind of a, uh, I'll segue into a completely different aspect here. But second, one of the challenges that I had um, early on in my business is it's really easy because there's so many things going on all at once. When you start a business, it's not just like, well, I'll just start a business, I'll go get a client, and then I'll start making money. It's like, well, I'll start a business, but I gotta set up the financial, you know, the financial system so that I can bill my clients. Like you get your first client, it's like, oh, holy crap. Okay, I need a credit card processor so that I can actually like bill them and process their payment. Well, shoot, I need to go out and and you know vet out all these credit card processing agencies and then um, you know, then I actually bill them. Well, crap! Now I have to log all of these things into a, you know, into QuickBooks or whatever it is, and I don't know how to do that. So I either need to learn how to do that or find an accountant, you know. And then you start working with your client. It's like, oh, okay. So it's not just 
being awesome at what I do, I also have to manage the relationship and mm-hmm. I have to communicate effectively and I have to make them excited about what I'm doing. And so I need good reporting and I need good communication. I need to be following up with them. Uh, you know, there's all of these things that start to, you know, slam me. This is just for one client and it's really easy to feel overwhelmed. And so one of the things that I started doing, this is a, I took a leaf out of, uh, from Tim Ferriss. He talks about on his podcast a lot, meditation. And so I thought, Oh, meditation. That's interesting. It sounds really hokey. It sounds really stupid to me, but I'm going to try it out because everyone that goes on his show keeps talking about meditation. And so maybe there's something there. So I started meditating every day. And it, and it, I mean, a lot of times it was just for like 10 or 15 minutes a day. It mm-hmm. was just, it was not extensive meditation, but it was enough time for me. Meditation for me does a couple of things. It helps me to number one, like clear out all the crap that piles up over the day because when you're moving on from one conversation to the next rapidly, I mean, you and I were talking before we started recording this show and you were talking about, this is your third podcast interview of the day. And you've got a couple <laughs> of other, you, you've got a couple of other calls by the end, end of the day. I mean, when you're moving from one conversation to the next like that, it's easy for you to just hold all these things in your head. Like, Oh, okay. I need to follow up with that person. Oh, okay. I need to, you know, I need to send this show off to my, to my producer. I need to like, you just start having all these things that build up in your head. And you can get to the end of the day and just feel totally stressed out and totally overwhelmed. So that, you know, the first several months that I was running my business, I would get to the end of my day and my kids would want to spend time with me and they'd be like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk to my kids right now. I'm, I got nothing. Yeah, I, I have nothing left to give. I'm like completely wiped out. And I don't want that. Like, I'm running a business so that I can provide for my family so that I can have more time with my family. And if I get to the end of my day and I don't even want to talk to them, like that's the complete opposite of what I want. And it's really easy to get burnt out when you're living that way. And it's really easy to have very low uh, satisfaction in your life because you are not spending time with the things that really make you happy. Uh, Last year, I had gone through an experiment where I was like, I'm going to meditate every single day. Like, I just want to see, because like you, I'd heard it in various places, Tim Ferriss and read about it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did an experiment of, uh, of meditating every day. And then actually I had a couple different ways that I was tracking, uh, I'll say my well-being, whether that's, you know, happiness, energy level, things like that. And, uh, so being the like super nerd that I am, I tracked this thing in Excel and graphed it over time. And I will tell you that out of all the experiments that I've done like that, meditation had the biggest impact on my overall well-being. I love that. And same thing for me. It helped me to kind of recharge my batteries. Even 15 minutes of meditation, I came out of that feeling more energized, feeling more awake and alert, feeling more able to connect with others, um, and which is amazing. You wouldn't think that 15 minutes can do that. Versus what I used to do is if I had 15 minutes of downtime, pull out my phone and start dinking around on my phone, play a video game, you know, all these things that I do, which don't actually leave me feeling any better afterwards. In fact, a lot of times I felt worse after spending 15 minutes doing that. And so those two practices, the affirmations and the meditation, I think are two habits that have really contributed uh, to my overall well-being and success. I'm definitely going to take those affirmations piece. I've uh, I've heard a few people advocate for that, but I, I've never, for whatever reason, I've never tried it out. But uh, but you're the I don't know the umpteenth person to tell me. So there's got to be something <laughs> to it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try that out. Um, awesome. Chris, let's pivot our discussion to your area of expertise again. And so digital and online marketing, it's so important right now. More and more, we're doing everything we need uh, to do in our lives from our phones, right? Or our tablets or to a lesser extent, our computers. But if you want to succeed, if you want to have a presence online, uh, you have to be good at online marketing. And a big part of that starts with a successful website, which is where you come in. Um, in your experience, what are the biggest problems most businesses or people have with their websites? Uh, when most people build a website, they do one of two things. They either go to a design agency or they have their internal designer just put together something that looks awesome. And I, I, I say awesome in quotes because it looks awesome to the designer or to the business owner and, and, they, and they launch it, right? So, okay, that's one way. The other way that a lot of businesses will launch their sites is they will go and find their biggest competitor and just copy them, right? Come up with something that maybe looks a little bit better, a little bit sharper, a little bit newer, and figure, well, whatever our competitor is doing must be working. So let's just start with what they have, and then we'll go from there. The challenge with both of those approaches 
is neither of those are based on any data that you have from your customers, from your audience. Now, a lot of businesses will come back to me and say, no, but we did a lot of customer profiling. We've talked to our customers. We've talked to uh, other people. You know, we, we understand what kinds of, you know, we understand who they are. We know what their age is, what their income level is, what, you know, where they live in the United States or outside the United States or whatever. They can tell me all this information about their, their target customer, but none of that actually tells you what they want from your website. Like, you know, you might know what other, what brands they follow on Facebook. You might know uh, how much they spend on Amazon. And none of that actually tells you what they want to see on your website. That's just information. It's helpful information that can help you market to them. But none of that tells you what they actually want. So I think the biggest challenge that most people have is they assume that the site they put together is exactly what people want. And the truth is they don't actually know that. Uh, they just have somebody's opinion, whether it's their competitor's opinion or their boss's opinion or a UX expert's opinion. Uh, and none of that actually translates into sales. What are some of the things that you can do to get relevant data then? If that's not the data, like what, what are some of the methods or approaches to, to get relevant data that would inform the, those types of uh, design decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, the best way to do that, and, you know, I'm not just saying this because this is what I do, but the best way to do that is to run A-B tests. So what we will do with a lot of our clients when they are approaching a website redesign, in fact, we've got a client right now, um, super cool client. I'll mention their name, Getaway Today. They sell Disneyland tickets, right? Probably like the coolest industry that you can possibly be in. <laughs> you know, there's no more exciting thing to be selling than Disneyland tickets. So they sell Disneyland Disneyland tickets online. They actually spent a tremendous amount of money um, working through a website redesign. Towards the tail end of that website redesign, we started working with them and they said, hey, will you help us test some of these designs? We just want to verify that they're going to work before we launch them on our site, which is super smart. I mean, a lot of companies don't even do that. They'll just launch it and then hope it works. So they came to us one step before that and said, help us test some of these things. And interestingly, probably half of the things that they were going to do on their new site didn't work, like actually decreased sales. <laughs> and the other half of the things did work. But you know what? Like if they had just launched their site, what would have happened is they would have had a net neutral impact. So nothing would have happened. And they would go, oh, okay, well, I mean, that wasn't a success, wasn't a failure, like whatever. Like we'll just, you know, but the truth is, there were some things that didn't work and there were some other things that worked well. They just didn't, they, they would never have known that. And so what we were able to help them do is say, hey, let's, let's break this new site design down. Let's break it down into each change and let's test them. Let's test your existing site against this one change. So you're redesigning the banner. Okay, let's try this new banner design and see if it works. Okay, so you're trying this new product page layout. Let's try this new layout and see if it works. If it doesn't work, well, boom, now we've caught it before it goes into production. And now we can help you explore some other ways of doing this. If it doesn't work well, let's break this down even further and try three or four different approaches and see if we can find something that works better. Um, if something works well, now you have some data. So now it's not a guess. So when you launch your new site and go, it's freaking sweet. Everything worked great. It's like, no, it wasn't freaking sweet. Everything didn't work great. But you know what? I know that this new banner worked really well. We got significantly higher conversion rates when we tried a picture of Goofy instead of a picture <laughs> of the Disneyland castle, you know, whatever. <laughs> right, right. Um, you can have some data around it. So this is what we also do. We just do this one step earlier with clients that don't have a website. So if you're building a new website, Instead of just, again, going to a designer or a UX expert and saying, design me something that works, you can say, hey, look, let's try three different approaches. When we launch our site, instead of just launching whatever we would have put up, let's try three different things and let's see what works best. That way, our first website design, like our our uh, baseline, if you, if you will, our baseline isn't just whatever our best guess was. It's look, we tried a few different best guesses and this turned out to be the one that actually performed the best. So that's really the best way to actually get some data because it's not just we asked our customers which one they liked best and they said they liked this one. It's, look, we actually ran this and this one generated the most conversions. You're, uh, you're a design thinker, human-centered designer without even knowing it, man. 
That's uh, <laughs> that's what we talk about all the time in human centered design, uh, design thinking. I use those te- those terms interchangeably. That it's better to prototype early and often when the cost and the impact uh, to you uh, is a lot cheaper versus waiting till it's been released or been you know uh, in production uh, and then trying to make those decisions. Oh yeah, not not just from a cost perspective, but also from a mentality perspective. Because yeah. one of the challenges that happens as soon as you get something out there on online and you get any kind of success, you automatically assume that everything you did worked. And so it's really hard to change that thought process later and say, "Oh, well, I have this homepage and it works really well right now and I don't want to ruin that." It's like, "Well, you don't know exactly why it works really well, and so let's dig in and let's test that." And so if you start with a testing mentality in mind, if you start being open to learning what the market dictates you should do on your website, it's much, much easier to continue with that mentality and continue having an open-minded testing user-centric mentality instead of later on going, well, let's not touch the website because it's working pretty well. Let's just focus on some of these other things over here. Chris, before I move on to the last part of the show, um, is there anything else you'd like us to know? Uh, any questions that I didn't ask where you're like, hey, this is really important uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship or you know, digital marketing. Uh, you guys should know this. So one of the big things that I think a lot of companies, I mean, in today's world, you have to be doing some kind of social media marketing, right? Like social media is where the vast majority of our customers are, especially if you have a B2C business, if you're selling products, if you're selling services to consumers, you're going to be marketing to them largely on Facebook or Instagram. And what happens with that is when you're marketing to people on Facebook or Instagram, where do they typically view Facebook and Instagram? They view it on their, on their phone, right? And so if you are marketing to them on Facebook or Instagram, they're going to see it on their phone. They're going to come to your website on their phone. And so it's critical that businesses have a good mobile experience. Now, the biggest challenge that most companies have with mobile is they don't have any freaking clue what people want on a mobile website. So most businesses will just take whatever they made for their desktop website and just shrink that down onto their mobile <laughs> device, Right. Now, I mean, we all know that that as I explain it that way, it's like, well, of course, that's not a good idea. But, you know, but that's what most businesses do because it's easy. And so I think one of the biggest competitive advantages that mo- that that any kind of B2C business can have is having a killer mobile website. And in order to have a killer mobile website, it doesn't just need to look good on mobile. You have to test and find out what exactly does my customer want on mobile. So I'll give you an example. One of our clients, super cool client, uh, they're called Diesel Power Gear. They have a show on the Discovery Channel called Diesel Bros. They sell all kinds of all kinds of stuff on their site. They've got beard oils and belt buckles and t-shirts and hats and whatever. All this different stuff. So they thought, well, okay, our our audience is on Instagram. Let's make our homepage look like Instagram. Let's just let them be able to scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll on mobile and they'll just keep seeing products as long as they scroll. Sounds like a good idea. So they made a homepage that did that. They had tons and tons of products on mobile. You could just scroll and scroll and scroll and you could just keep finding more stuff. So we we came in and we started working with them. We said, well, let's challenge that idea. You know, in our experience, mobile users have a very short attention span. If you keep showing them stuff, they're going to think that they have to keep looking at stuff. <laughs> yep. And so let's try a version of the site where we limit the amount of products that we show them. So we we tested multiple different versions of their homepage. We tested... I think eight different versions of their homepage where we showed less and less and less and less products. Out of these eight different versions of their homepage, six of them increased revenue over the infinite scrolling, you know, uh, Instagram format. And we ended up finding that it it was almost the less products we showed, the more money they made. (laughs) Paradoxically, that's really crazy. Yes, it was fascinating. And so similarly, whether your business is B2B, B2C, you know, whether you are trying to get someone to fill out a lead form or buy a product or give you their email address, you need to understand what a mobile user needs to see in order to do that. How much information do they want from you? Because it's going to be less information probably than your desktop users want. It's probably going to be fewer steps in the process than a desktop user would want. Um, And so it's critical that you really dive into mobile and figure out what's different about our mobile users and how can we cater to them. 
Uh, you have me thinking. I'm like, uh, did I do that for my website? I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after we're done here, I'm going to be going back and uh, doing a little bit of research on my mobile experience for my website. Look, it's time for my favorite part of the show. This is where we talk about one of the best habits we can adopt today. And I think that's the habit of reading. Chris, I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years or books that have resonated with you. What are the two or three that stand out? Yeah, this is kind of a no-brainer for me. I think the two that I have applied most in my life, one of them is, I already mentioned Tim Ferriss. His book, The 4-Hour Workweek, is... I think a must for any entrepreneur, not because of the concept. A lot of people go, oh, four hour work week. Like that's, there's no way I could do that. Um, but they're just judging the book based on the title. The book, one of the things that I loved that the book introduced, the concept that this book introduced to me was he, he calls it lifestyle design. And what he means when he says lifestyle design is he's talking about figuring out what you want to do in your life. Like what, what are the things that you would like to learn? What are the, what are the skills that you would like to develop? What are the places that you would like to travel? And starting to do those things now, you know, developing a, a lifestyle of fulfillment, of, of doing the things that bring you joy now instead of waiting until you retire. That was a, a beautiful concept to me. It made so much sense. And I've started doing that. In fact, one, one of the interesting habits I took up uh, in the last year was painting of all things. You know, I'm, I, I do a lot of work with design, but I am probably the least artistic person on this planet. I can't even draw a stick figure to save my life. But I took up painting. My wife bought me this, this painting starter kit that was like $150. So I was like, oh, I guess I better try it out. I ended up with a painting that looked decent. And I was like, hey, that was kind of fulfilling. Um, so I've, you know, at this point, I've probably painted 30 or 40 of those paintings now. And I get a lot of joy out of that. I get a lot of fulfillment. And it's not convenient. I mean, it takes me probably at least four hours of dedicated time to finish a painting. But you know what? Like, if I prioritize that and I do that twice a month, I get a ton of enjoyment out of that. I get a ton of fulfillment. I feel like I'm developing my skills. I feel like I am producing something that's meaningful to me. And so, again, that's something that I wouldn't do if it was like, Oh my gosh, I gotta, I've got four hours of time. I need to go, you know, catch up on email, you know, do something for work. That would not bring me nearly as much fulfillment. So I love the four hour work week. And then um, I think just a must read for everyone is the seven habits of highly effective people. I've read that a couple of times. That just helps me to really think about uh, where to focus my time and attention as an entrepreneur. It, that book took on a whole new definition for me when I started a business because suddenly all of these principles that I had read previously, I needed to apply them in completely different ways in my life as an entrepreneur. So I, I love that book as well. I've read both of those. And I'll guess Anya and say, uh, for all of us, uh, we should definitely read that. The last question, Chris, uh, what are you working on now that you're really excited about? So <laughs> this is something that um, th this is not something that is technically work related. So about eight months ago, I made the decision to get rid of my smartphone. Ooh. Yeah, I know. A lot of people I've been it's, toying it's, with the same idea, but uh, <laughs> uh here here well, I'll I'll share this one nugget and then I'll let you uh finish your story, but my my fear because I do a lot of traveling for work is that I've become so dependent on Uber and Lyft getting to mm. and from where I need to go that I'm like, well, what do I do? Like, and yep. <laughs> like, uh, you know, and you know, like all of my travel stuff is on my phone. Right. So I've, I've got my, uh, you know, my, my air, you know, air, uh, airline pass. I've got my mm -hmm. you know, ride share. I've got like everything on there. So I have yep. been toying with it because it is, uh, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, it's an easy way to divert yourself, uh, into just doing nothingness. <laughs> and it's, it's so interesting. There are a million reasons to not do it. Um, and I, and I'll tell you the first month that I, after I got rid of my smartphone was so painful. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing how painful it was. And that's when I realized that I was onto something because it was so painful to me. I'm like, there, I don't I, like, I functioned for whatever, you know, 18, 20 years without a smartphone. Like there must be a way to do it, but it seems like a necessity in today's world. And I, I wanted to break my addiction to my smartphone. And so one, one specific example, I went to the doctor's office. And first of all, I didn't know where my doctor's office was. So I had to print out a map to get there. <laughs> then second, I got there and there was like a 45 minute wait. 
And I was just like, oh, no, 45 minutes. Like, what am I going to do? I can't check my email. I can't, you know, whatever, like go on social media, whatever I would have done on my smartphone. And I, I literally spent at least 15 minutes just staring at the ground. <laughs> there was like the price is right on TV. And it was like, I don't really want to watch this. And so I'm just sitting there staring at the ground. And it finally dawned on me. It's like, oh, there's other things that I could do. Maybe I, maybe I could call somebody. So I picked up my phone, I made a phone call, and I called a friend of mine, and we had a great connecting conversation. That was an eye-opener for me to go, wow, Like if I force myself to go without this smartphone, there's some really great things that can end up happening. You know, I feel more connected when I'm with my kids because I don't, you know, every time I get an email, it's not vibrating in my pocket. And even if I don't pick it up while I'm with my kids, it's still on my mind. Oh, I wonder what that email is. Oh, let me just pull it out real quick and see what the email is. So yep. I know yep. whether or not I need to respond. Like, you know, there's just all these things that go through your head. Another thing that has been really interesting for me, this has been a big psychological shift for me, but because I cannot work on my flip phone, when I do work at home, it is a very deliberate choice. So it's easy to be accidentally working when you're on your smartphone. Mm-hmm. You know, you you are just kind of always working when you're on your smartphone. Even if you're on social media, even if you're whatever playing a video game on your phone or watching Netflix, like if that email pops up, it's like, "Oh, I'll just respond real quick. It'll just take 30 seconds." And so there's no more accidental working when you're on a flip phone. It's like I am going to go and sit down on my computer and work for 30 minutes or an hour. And so it's become a very deliberate choice. And that is extremely liberating. That's a very empowering feeling to go, I get to choose when I am engaging with work and when I'm not. That, that's been, it's actually brought me a lot of satisfaction. So that's something that I've been really excited about. I honestly think that everyone should at least try switching to a smartphone for a week just as an experiment because of how painful it was, it's a big eye-opener um, into what we have kind of filled our lives with. And it's it's been a great a great experience for me. So can you actually buy like flip phones or did you have to go on like the used market or eBay to buy a flip phone? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, they still sell flip phones. I went into the AT&T store and I just said, give me the worst phone you have. Like give me the thing that nobody buys. And so he like goes in the back room and pulls out this I mean, it literally looks like it's from 1990. Um, And it it literally can only text and call. That is all I can do on my phone. And it's amazing. (laughs) You know, I still have my iPhone that's locked away in my safe that I I will probably switch back to at some point here in the next few months. But, but But before I did that, before I went back to a smartphone, I wanted to truly and be able to honestly tell myself that I don't feel like I need it. I wanted to just really feel like I am independent. I can live my life without a smartphone. That is a great experiment, brother. And I couldn't think of a better way to close this this interview with. Chris, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. I'm definitely taking some, uh, some really concrete habits and practices that I can integrate into my own life. Awesome. Thank you for having me on the show. You can connect with Chris Daly online through his organization's website, disruptiveadvertising.com and his Twitter account, at Chris Daly. That's C-H-R-I-S-D-A-Y-L-E-Y. All the links and resources Chris and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 31. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today, and I'll see you next time.